Our train trip north of the city takes us into a poor rural district. The village we're in at the moment and the area we're in, only 0.02% of people are followers of Jesus. We went to a village yesterday and some of the things that I saw that are dictated by the majority faith in this place just really disturbed me. The way women are treated just was really quite upsetting. I didn't sleep that well last night. In a place that seems so dark, we are making known the hope that is found in Jesus. So for me, I, I just heard two of the women's testimonies. Uh, one of them, she, she said that it got to a point where she had no hope, no future, no way to earn an income, no way to care for her, her children. She decided she'd either have to commit suicide or, or somehow get a job. She managed to get a job in one of our freedom businesses. Uh, just the smile on her face, the way she's able to now look after not only her children, but her parents as well. And, and that's something that, that we as New Zealand Baptists are part of, part of her story. We're making a difference. A one hour car ride north of the city takes us to a town rich in mission history. The gospel was brought to this town over 200 years ago. And this is where we have been led as New Zealand Baptists to continue the work that was started so many years before. Just one thing you notice being out on the mission field is just how, what a long-term commitment this is, that learning language isn't easy, that learning a culture isn't easy, that fitting into um, somewhere that's different isn't easy. Uh, it's a long-term commitment and, and for us as uh, people back at home in New Zealand Baptist churches, we have to be prepared to encourage people to make that long-term commitment and then support them for that commitment. We're attempting great things and we're expecting great things from God. Pray for the people we have sent, pray for the people they are serving, and pray for God's faithfulness to be evident in our work overseas. We can't actually see the video here, so it's finished. Excellent. Cool. Hey, um, what we're going to do this morning, Morena, is have a bit of a conversation about India and about gender, the Bible and us. Um, and if you think that's a little odd, well, we'll sort of rock straight into it. Um, I've asked Wendy and I are going to have this conversation. We'd like you to eavesdrop. We think there's good content in it. Wendy, Baptists seem pretty focused on women in India. Why? Well, as you can see in, in the video, um, women have a pretty rough time in India. In fact, India is the worst country in the world to live if you're a woman. Um, and as Baptists, as New Zealand Baptists, we're actually doing something about that uh, with Free Set, Love Calcutta, Loyalty. If you look at the world population, um, I think everyone would agree that there should be 50% women, 50% men. And in Western countries, there is... Um, usually more women than men. Um, but it's been estimated that worldwide, 60 million to 101 million women are missing from the world based on that. And every year, another 200, girls, 200 million girls, sorry, 2 million girls worldwide disappear because of gender dis discrimination. Um, in India, this is seen in gender selection. For example, daughters are less likely to be vaccinated. They are taken to hospital when they're much sicker, so they um, die much more, uh, more than 50% more, more than boys. They, um, aged one to five children die, girls die. 
um, because of abuse, things like bride burning, um, and then there's slavery, um, where two to three million prostitutes um, are in India, most of them forced into it. When Linda and I went to Bangladesh, very close to India, and um, some of the best aid and development things we saw were focused on equipping women, a couple of reasons. Um, one was, um, somewhat depressingly, you've heard that saying, you give a man and a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Well, in this world they say, give a woman a fish and she'll feed her family for a week. And what they found is the women who were very powerless were also very focused on their families and community, and so they were giving literacy projects for groups of women, and in that process of teaching them to read and handle money and that kind of stuff, they were also here's the problems if your kids' daughters are getting married at 13. It's actually not good for them. Mm. A, a pregnant 13-year-old is not a good story for anyone, mm. um, and yet that's the kind of stuff that was happening. So what's Christianity got to say about this? Well, actually, at the time of Jesus um, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, things were also pretty dire for women. In fact, there's a, a lot of the same issues we see come up. I'm going to watch a video now. If you were to describe what life was like as a woman in the Greco-Roman world, kind of around the time of Jesus or just before, what was life like then? Uh, it was just radically different from what our world looks like today. I mean, it, it partly will depend on the social economic status of the woman. It will depend on whether she's living in the city or the countryside. But basically, with the rare exception of the very wealthy Greco-Roman women, uh, most women just didn't have the autonomy that women have today. So you would either be under the authority of your father or of your husband. and. Um, Part of this comes from the sort of uh, platonic philosophy that you get at that time where Plato basically argued that women are in every sense inferior to men, whether that's morally, intellectually, uh, spiritually and physically. Just in every sense, they're not on the same level. And the way that worked out was that within the, the Greco-Roman household, um, there would be a very strong hierarchy. Uh, so there was this idea that actually um, women as a general rule, shouldn't be allowed outside of the home. Uh, married women would tend to be secluded, and it was even worse if you were an unmarried daughter. You would just be kept inside a lot of the time. Obviously, that's for the more wealthy. At the other end of the spectrum, if you were extremely poor, then there's a good chance that you would actually have been a slave. And as a slave woman, you're basically the property of your master and can be used for whatever means he would desire, including sexually. And so it's, it's just a really different world. One of the um, a fourth century Greek philosopher, a guy called uh, Demonthenes, actually writes that in that culture, uh, men would keep a mistress uh, for pleasure, they would keep concubines for their bodily needs, and they would keep a wife for children and for the guarding of the household. So we see that, that Jesus, Jesus treated women incredibly different, incredibly counter-culturally. Um, than, than what the pervading culture was where he lived. Um, Luke tells us, Luke often uses um, complementary like parables, and puts the parables together. So, so Jesus tells um, the story about a man and then tells the story about a woman straight after. So like you have the, the man who planted the mustard seed, the woman who stirred yeast side by side, and we have the, the man who lost a sheep and the woman who lost a coin. And so all through the Gospels we see this, this interaction with women that is totally countercultural. And because our culture is not quite there, we miss it. 
one of the things you'll get taught at a Bible college in a, is to pay a lot of attention to whenever a woman appears in Scripture. And they say that because you, we need to understand um, most of the time, or when the times when the Bible is being written, it's a time when men write for men to read about men. And so a woman's name appearing in the genealogy is a shock for them. We take it for granted. But for them, so they would say, um, when you read of a woman in the scripture, you want to think of neon lights flashing behind there saying, pay attention, because in their very male-dominated society, that is an, that's an outlier, that's a bit almost subversive. Now, you have a little line here from Rodney Stark talking about... Yeah, you really look at the situation of the Roman women, uh, it was awful. Compare that with the situation of Christian women and, and you really uh, wonder why, why every woman who ever heard about it didn't become a Christian immediately. I mean, Roman girls got married at 12, 13, 14 to men who were over 30. They had nothing to say about it and very little to say about it, the max. They could be divorced, snap of the fingers, uh, and abandoned. There was, no, uh, uh, there was no divorce court telling them you have to pay alimony or anything like that. Christian women tended to get married at 18, 19, had a lot of say in who they married, uh, divorce was thought to be impermissible. Uh, it was thought normal for Roman men to play around. It was thought a sin for Christian men to play around. Uh, Christian women had a, simply a much more secure, uh, nicer life. Yeah, they certainly did. Um, when we're looking at scripture, we look, we look at the, the big story, and we have to be very careful not to look at just a, a single story. There's danger in looking just at a single story. For example, I just told you about India and about women's role in, in, in their plight in India, but that's just a single story. I could have told you that also India has 28 million Christians and that um, they are the second or third largest missionary sending nation in the world. And that gives a, a broader picture of what we're talking about. So when, when we look at, at the Bible, we need to look at the, the big picture, the broader picture, not just a single story. Um, and ultimately we need to look at the grand narrative. And, and one of the grand narratives of the Bible is it talks about God as Trinity. And this is, I still think, the best thing ever. Um, here you have a God, three persons who like each other enough, spend so much time with each other, they choose to do stuff together all the time. In fact, it's really hard to start tell where one starts and the other stops, which for me is this wonderful picture of community. Um, and there is not really, it's not marked by hierarchy, there's a coneness to it. So right at our very, very big picture, this is God, is this sense of... Um, combination, partnership built into the very character of God, it is not first and foremost about hierarchy in there. In fact, quite difficult to tell roles. And then as, we, as we're proceeding the story, we see, we see God creating as in um, the oneness of God and the Trinity creating. You see all, all parts of God in the Trinity. 
And then in the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it tells us that God created uh, man in his own image. Um, in his own image, he created them. Man and woman, he created them. And so we see this 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 oneness that that they are with God and with with each each other. Um, and he's, and God says to them, He gives them a, a task: be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves the ground. God doesn't say to Adam, "You rule over the earth," and Eve, "You fill it," but He gives them a task together to do those things. And so we see a partnership. And then, of course, things go wrong. And things go wrong, yes, they do. Um, And we see the fall. And in the fall and the curse, um, God says to to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so, so we see the start of hierarchy. So, I mean, people argue about this kind of stuff, but big picture wise, this sort of picture of mutuality, both given a task, Let's have a quick ticky tour through some things for the Old Testament. Okay. Um, So there's three women that sort of stand out um, that help us in this area in the Old Testament. Um, One is Hilda. I really love Hilda. She was a prophet, and she was in the time of King Josiah um, when the the law was found uh, again, and King Josiah wanted to renew relationship with God. Um, He asked Hilda a prophet to come and teach him and to teach the people. Now, he could have asked Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum or Habakkuk um, because all those were around, all those prophets were around. They all wrote books of the Old Testament, um, all prominent prophets. But he asked Hilda. So it's not because Hilda, because there was no woman, to, uh, no man to go to, but Hilda was she legitimate was, prophet. She was exceptional among the prophets. That's I right. Say, I had no idea she existed. Anybody else know of Hilda? <laughs> oh, well done. Well, there's, someone did. But, you know, we just don't know. Another couple of women would be um, Deborah, who was a prophet, judge, and warrior. I think probably everybody knows the story of Deborah. And then Miriam, who often gets a bit sidelined, part of the Moses Aaron team. Um, she was the prophet, Aaron was the priest, uh, and Moses was the lawgiver. And it's another, for me, another place where we tend to, who do we remember? We remember Moses. Yep, and we kind of forget Aaron and, and actually, did, who's Miriam? Um, it's that single story mm. thing that mm. seems to get precedence. It is. New Testament. So in the New Testament, Jesus announces the, new, the kingdom of God has come, doesn't he? Um, in... 2 Corinthians, um, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And we see the start of the restoration of how things are meant to be. And, and look, we, we kind of missed this stuff, but here when it goes and talks about um, in the last days God will pull out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. We miss the fact that they want to hear their sons will prophesy. But to say their daughters will prophesy in that culture is like, what? Mm. Really? Mm. And it won't just be your, it, my, it, even on my servants, both men and women. What about yeah. women in the New Testament? So women in the New Testament feature a lot. 
Um, but what I want to talk about just three of them. Um, firstly, Junior. So these three women are all mentioned in Romans 16, where Paul does all his greetings at the end. Um, so Junia, along with her husband, Andronicus, uh, mentioned as esteemed apostle. And for a long time, Junia was translated Junius, because um, that's a man's name, but it's it's been pretty well proved that Junius doesn't exist. It's never been found anywhere else, whereas Junia was a common name. Um, and she is called by Paul an esteemed apostle. Um, Phoebe was the one that took the letter to, to Rome. Uh, she was a deacon of the church, and because she took the letter to Rome, it's most likely she was actually an interpreter and teacher from that, from that letter of Romans. Quite a difficult letter. <laughs> um, Priscilla um, is called a teacher, and we've and Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned many times, often with Priscilla, the first name mentioned, which is totally countercultural. And Paul calls her a co-worker, which mm. is interesting, because that's like um, co-pastor. That's, again, language of, actually, you're my equal, you're my peer. You're, it's not language of hierarchy, which I, I think mm. is really significant. But is, is this how the church is normally seen, men and women? No, it didn't take long for things to change. Um, as the church became more institutionalised, um, women started to be sidelined. Um, they reaffirmed the worldview of Aristotle and Plato that we heard so on the video. That's that Greek background. Yep, that Greek background that they lived in. And, and um, women were seen as a deformity of men, a failed man. And they were characterised as temptresses, whores and witches. And in this whole um, period of, a, of about a thousand years of, of the uh, Middle Ages, it's estimated that 60 to 200,000 women were burnt as witches. And these were uh, mostly single females um, beyond childbearing age. Because there seems to be this thing, and this is represented, say, in places like India, um, a single man is acceptable and has a place of power and some prestige. A single woman is, it was not regarded as so. Mm. You had to be in some kind of uh, relationship um, mm. with someone who was above you in authority. Mm. Mm. And during this time we see the um, rise of celibacy, um, the monasteries, men and women being separated in order to be spiritual. Um, it's not till the 15th, uh, 16th century when Martin Luther arrives on the, centre, uh, on the stage and he redis rediscovers Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And women um, gain a new, a new status, respect and security because of the Reformation. Um, it's interesting that neither the Renaissance or the Enlightenment had much effect on women's um, position, but it's when we come to the Industrial Revolution um, in the 1800s that brought about significant change for women. So there's the move to the city um, and there's the separation of men and women because men go out and get the jobs and women um, stay at home and they become the moral guardians of the home um, and that's their new role. Um, and as the moral guardians, you can see things like the temperance movement, anti-slavery, 
Um, missions becomes a huge thing. Women's missions, um, men's, uh, the traditional missions wouldn't let women go, so they start their own uh, missions and send um, women out. Um, and they tackle problems um, such as, as sati, which is the burning of, of widows on their, on their husband's um, burial uh, fire. Their, um, funeral fires. Um, they managed to get foot binding um, forbidden um, and education is always at the heart of their endeavour. Um, but this is, there becomes a sort of tearing apart of, of husbands and wives into these two different roles and actually divorce rates skyrocket and the church becomes really, really concerned about these um, divorce rates and the church becomes feminine dominated, female dominated and so there's this pushback um, by men at this time and women also gain the vote during this time and there's this pushback by um, men to define the, the separate roles uh, of men and women. So I see quite a troubled history and, and every time there's a shift then, um, well, you know, men we, men, we can feel insecure in this kind of setting. But remember, the big picture is of mutuality, is of connection and mm. relationship. Mm. You could ask, well, what about New Zealand Baptists? Where are they on the scale? Because um, there's still a range of um, places that people stand. Um, the Baptists put some time into this. If you went to our, our current website and clicked on Learn and then Links, there's a thing on gender equality. Essentially, Baptists in New Zealand, to a large extent, believe men and women are made in the image of God, that men and women can lead and be followers, um, can follow Jesus, men and women are capable of teaching and preaching. We, we don't see it as um, your gender as ruling anything out. Okay, we don't think it's that. Um, and if you were interested on that page, that links to a Kerry College page, which has all sorts of articles. So if you're sitting there going, I strongly disagree, I'd love to have a chat with you about it, but I'd love you to have a look at some of the articles out here um, because they help us understand scripture. And there are some things in scripture that are tricky. Mm. Tricky to understand. And in fact, you know, one of the things that comes up on this is this need to be careful when we're reading the Bible and to pay attention to big stories and be very careful when you're dealing with texts that could be interpreted in different ways. Because we do have some problem texts here, don't we? We do. There is um, two particular problem texts. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, where it says, Women shall remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak and must be in submission. Um, and also 1 Timothy 2, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Um, these are really difficult passages, um, mostly because they contradict Paul in so many other texts. Um, you can read, oh, well, I've, I've have an interest in this area. I've sort of been forced into having an interest in this area. Um, so I've read lots of different theologians, and they just about all say something different. They are problem texts, and so I really feel quite strongly that we shouldn't base our theology on, on, on texts that we struggle to understand um, that can be interpreted in different ways. But, but um, So Paul contradicts these in so many, other, so many um, other passages as we've already talked about, the junior and so forth. 
But also you've but, got to hear the 1 Corinthians Yeah, yeah, and one, and 1 Corinthians 14, 39, which is just after the, the woman should remain silent. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So, brothers and sisters, eager to prophesy. That's not the only time in, in Corinthians it, it talks in that sort we, of way. We face way. an issue with consistency. We do. Um, so, a classic, that one Timothy, if we're going to take that seriously, one of the first things in that chapter is that men should pray with their arms raised. Okay, so all of you here, all of you blokes who are not doing this when you're praying, if we're going to take it, that's, that's, that's not okay. So we're going to end up with stronger um, muscles because <laughs> it's quite tiring. But uh, we just we run the risk of focusing on one issue and being inconsistent, not giving scripture a fair go. Wendy, why is this important to you? Um, it's important to me because I've well I've. I've come across lots of different thinking around this area, but I believe it should actually be important to everybody because Paul in those passages is concerned with the image the church has by those outside the church. And the same is true for us. We should be concerned um, that we are a responsible witness to those in the world around us. Um, be concerned to model the way things God actually intended them to be right at the beginning. Uh, for me personally, being up here is really not my natural habitat. I'm naturally a shy, introverted sort of person and, and that's who God made me. Um, and as a woman, I have an excuse to hide behind the men in my life, my husband, pastor, ministry leaders um, and so forth. Um, and that would actually be really acceptable. I don't you know, feel compelled that I have to go up here culturally. Um, and only the other day, I was at um, my son's wedding and I let my husband speak on, on our behalf instead of saying something myself. It's really easy just, just for me, just to let my husband do the upfront stuff. Um, but I really believe that that's not what God requires of, of me. Um, and fortunately here at, at Parklands, I've found a really safe place and I, I feel accepted as, as I find my voice. Um, and I'm very grateful um, that the New Zealand Baptists are willing to accept my voice as, as equal to that of any man. Um, the whole issue of women in church and in leadership um, is something that has confronted me as being a, a missionary along with Malcolm. Um, and as a woman studying theology, I've, I've had to deal with it. Um, it's confronted me in my personal experience, um, in the books I've read, and the people, and the stories I've, um, I've heard from people. And actually, it's a thing for me. Um, I think church is supposed to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. I think... We're supposed to be the trailer for the blockbuster movie. Mm -hmm. And it really grieves me when we're not that way. And it grieves me when I see power uh, misused. Um, and there's a twofold thing. Oh, thank you for the courage of saying, you know, some, it, it is easy to opt out. Mm -hmm. you know? Actually, it's not always great being up here. Um, thanks for your voice. But I've been around for a while and I've met so many women who've had a lousy deal, who've been treated really badly 
in life and placed in positions where they've ended up with no power. And that might be our culture, but it should not be God's church. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be better than this. And you know, Jesus always has an eye for the margins and the marginalised. And uh, I quite like Billy Bragg. And Billy Bragg was quoted on national radio a while ago, and he uh, paraphrased the left-wing MP who spoke to power, and he said, what power do you... This um, MP talking to a bunch of bankers. What power do you have? In whose interests do you use it? Oh, sorry, uh, let me start that again. What power do you have? Where did you get it from? In whose interests do you use it? Who are you accountable to, and how can I get rid of you? <laughs> so I don't want to say that last line. But I actually think all of us as followers of Jesus would do well to pay attention to what power we have. To ask ourselves, where did we get it from? To ask ourselves, in whose interests are we using it? All of our power, our abilities, our influence, the, our jobs, our, our, our income. In whose interests are we using it? Who are we accountable with? And I would say... The story of Jesus is, how can I share it? His coming to earth is this deliberate decision in Philippians. Not to grasp power for its own right, but to use it to serve others. That is how church is supposed to be. And I, you know, when I see churches, when I see communities like ours where you get to be who you are, and it matters, regardless of age and gender and... That's a taste of the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to. Hence this thing, which brings us back to India. Because that's what they're working for. And uh, despite my technology paying, packing a sad on me, we had a bit of a prayer that we thought we'd pray. And uh, Wendy and I are going to read a bit of it. And then with the last bit, we'll ask you to join us. And actually, we'll stop there because we've gone a, uh, taken a bit more time than we planned. Um, this is a prayer that um, a, a woman in India has written. She's earthed it into um, earthed it in um, Elizabeth's prayer, and so it comes up in um, comes up in English, and then it's written underneath in Hindi, I think. Um, do you like to start? Um, this is a prayer of what the Lord has done for me when He looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. God of, God of Elizabeth, sorry. when Elizabeth heard news of joy, she celebrated, not just because she was part of an important story, but because a kind story had wrapped itself around her and the disgrace she had endured was enlightened. Lighten the places of our disgraces. Lighten, Lighten them. And if you could join us. Wrap, wrap yourself and, and your story around, around us. Because, because you, you can, can be, be the, the great, great story that, that surrounds, surrounds us. us. Amen. That's going to bring us to the end of this part of the service. We do have tea and coffee. We'd love for you to stay and have a chat with someone. That's kind of a heavy topic. So do feel free to talk about the weather or um, how did the Crusaders do? Uh, or whatever it is your, your safe connections are. Um, but don't be scared of talking about relationships and power and the stuff that Jesus works through. And don't forget, next week, uh, we're joining with two other churches. Yep, so come along, be prepared to help others. We'll, the tables will be away. We'll go back to the other seating.
Um, some of you will be pleased about that and some of you will be sad. <laughs> Cheers, guys. <laughs>